The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Just as a matter of public messaging, it is, I think, not a good thing for the president to ever say the phrase, I don't think what I'm doing is legal. But that's okay because by the time the courts enjoin me, I will have accomplished my objective, right? If the president thinks that what he is doing is not legal, he should not do it. If the president thinks that what he is doing is legal, he should say that what he thinks he is doing is legal. But he should not say, I think what I'm doing is illegal and I'm going to wait for the courts to enjoin me. Because, of course, the president is not just a regular litigant in civil litigation. The president is the head of the executive branch. He has an independent obligation to take care that the laws be executed. And so he presumably has an obligation to act in a sincere belief that he is executing the laws as he understands them. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 11th, 2021. You've probably heard about the craziness around the Biden administration's new eviction moratorium It's being called lawless. They consulted outside law professors instead of the Justice Department. Or did they? The president said he didn't have the authority to do it. Or did he? And then he did it anyway. We've had two big articles on the subject in the last couple days, one of them by Lawfare senior editor Alan Rosenstein, the other by Lawfare's founding editor Jack Goldsmith, They both joined me in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk it all through. What exactly did the Biden administration say? What exactly did it do? Where was the Justice Department? And did any of this violate the law? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 11th, a moratorium fiasco. Let's start here with an overview of what happened. We don't normally think of eviction moratoria or landlord-tenant law as lawfare territory, but uh, for a variety of reasons, this uh, has kind of jumped into the terrain of the site despite the subject matter. So, Alan, give us a sense of the narrative history of this eviction moratorium and the litigation surrounding it and why we care from a lawfare point of view. Sure. So let me start with just a brief overview of the moratorium itself. So in March of last year, as part of the CARES Act, Congress imposed a limited eviction moratorium. The idea being that if people get evicted and they have to go onto the streets or they have to go into shared housing, that'll spread COVID. Um, Now that eviction moratorium expired over the summer. And then in September, the CDC, using its statutory authorities uh, to make regulations necessary to stop the spread of infectious disease, imposed its own broader nationwide eviction 
moratorium. Congress then extended that for a month in the winter. The CDC then extended it again in March, and then it was set to expire in in July. Now, when the CDC enacted or when the CDC rather promulgated the eviction moratorium, uh, that was challenged in federal court uh, by a variety of plaintiffs, mostly uh, landowners and associations of uh, landlords. I mean, the argument was that the CDC lacked the statutory authority to impose this moratorium. The district court in the District of Columbia actually found for the plaintiffs that the CDC lacked that authority, but it at the same time imposed a stay on its own ruling uh, so that the U.S. government could have an opportunity to appeal. It appealed to the district court, uh, to the D.C. Circuit, rather. Uh, the D.C. Circuit um, upheld the stay. Uh, the D.C. Circuit thought that the uh, CDC did, in fact, have the have the authority to impose this moratorium. And then the Supreme Court in uh, the end of June, in an unsigned 5-4 decision, denied the plaintiff's request to lift the stay. So basically, it upheld the stay that the district court put on its own judgment that the moratorium was illegal. The upshot of all of this was that the moratorium was able to continue, but the moratorium was always going to expire at the end of July. Um, And in fact, uh, the reason that Justice Kavanaugh, who was the only person to write an an opinion as part of this judgment or part of this this order, the only reason that Kavanaugh signed on to allow the moratorium to continue was because it was about to expire. And so he thought, let's let it expire in a couple of weeks if we don't need to strike this down right now. But Kavanaugh also stated that he actually agreed with the district court that the CDC lacked the authority. So Kavanaugh plus the four uh, conservative justices that would have voted to uh, strike down the moratorium as exceeding the CDC's authority signaled pretty clearly that there are five uh, votes in the Supreme Court against the idea that the CDC has this authority. Now, after that decision that came down, the Biden administration interpreted the Supreme Court's actions, again, as a pretty clear signal that the CDC could not simply uh, start up a a new eviction moratorium. And so it used uh, the month of July to work with Congress so Congress would pass a law that would provide some relief to uh, individuals needing rental assistance. Now, Congress declined to do that, and the CDC moratorium was set to expire at the end of July. And so starting August, people were going to start getting evicted. Uh, This is obviously, of course, as the Delta variant is beginning to pick up steam. And the Biden administration starts getting a huge amount of pressure, especially from progressive Democrats, people like uh, AOC, people like Cori Bush. But going up, you know, until the end of July, the Biden administration keeps saying, look, we don't have the authority, we don't have the authority, we don't have the authority. And then suddenly, at the beginning of last week, the Biden administration changed its position deciding that, in fact, the CDC did have the authority to impose a more limited moratorium. uh, And that is what the CDC did. And uh, where we're at now is trying to figure out where the Biden administration got the legal advice to allow it to do so. And whether Biden even thinks that this is, in fact, legally available, or if he's just imposing or having the CDC impose a moratorium uh, to give people some relief while uh, it inevitably gets challenged once again. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the episode. All right. So that was a long answer, but I'm not sure it addressed the fundamental question that I asked. So I'm going to pose this to Jack. Why do we care about this from a lawfare point of view? There is a, you know, a lot of sites in the country where people can go to think about landlord-tenant law and 
whether there should be an eviction moratorium and public health authorities, whether it reaches that. These are not questions we tend to think about, and yet you both took the time to write pretty extensive pieces about this episode for Lawfare. Uh, Why do we care about it? I think we care about it because it touches on three issues, at least three issues that we often write about and I think is at the core of what we think about. One, it's a case about the scope of emergency power. The CDC was exercising an authority that was an emergency authority. So that's that's the first issue. The second issue is it's about the scope of presidential power and whether, which is a frequent topic for us, obviously, and whether the president had authority to act or whether the president was acting extra legally. This comes in the context of an administration that candidate Biden had criticized the the, the Trump administration for its legal excesses, and he pledged to be a constitutionalist. So it's particularly interesting if it's true that the president here is acting lawlessly, as many people uh, suggested. The third reason is, uh, as Alan wrote about more extensively than I did, there's a question about uh, legal advice within the administration, what the Justice Department position was, what was the Office of Legal Counsel's position, what did the Solicitor General say, how did the lawyering inside the administration work in this context of presidential power concerning an emergency? All right. So I want to go through each of those three questions in turn, but I actually want to start with the second one, which is a lot of the criticism that the administration has faced here orients around the idea that Biden said, I don't have the authority to do this on my own, and then turned around and did it, and that therefore there is uh, something lawless about, uh, in somewhat the same way that people criticized the Obama administration for DACA, for, you know, a situation where the president kind of parades around that says, my hands are tied, Congress has to do this. Oh, okay, I'll do it myself. So Jack, you dissent from this view, and your piece at some considerable length argues that, in fact, there is nothing legally deficient about what the president did here or what the CDC did, notwithstanding the bad optics of that. Some people may find it surprising that you argued that, given that you're, you know, you're not a left-wing scholar by any means. But so walk us through it. Why do you not have legal anxieties about what the administration did here? Well, I'm not sure I don't have legal anxiety. I'm not sure I don't have anxieties about it, but you're right. I don't think that what they did was unlawful, but it's important to unpack what that means. I'm fairly confident that when, if and when the Supreme Court reaches the merits of the legality of the CDC moratorium, that the court is going to declare it unauthorized and therefore invalid. I'm pretty confident that's the case. I think it's a fair prediction from the unsigned order that the court issued, and I think it's a fair reading of the case of, of the statute and the case law. I don't think it's a slam dunk. I think there's a pretty powerful argument that on the merits of what the CDC did was lawful. It really turns on some contested questions about the scope of the Chevron doctrine. But when I say that the Biden administration acted lawfully, I'm not talking about, I'm not defending the merits ultimately of the CDC eviction moratorium. I'm talking about that when they issued the renewed moratorium on August 4th, I think it was, 3rd or 4th, 
after they had said they didn't have the authority to do so, I actually don't think they did anything untoward there. The, the administration, both the Biden administration and the Trump administration, had made plausible, very reasonable arguments in support of the CDC eviction moratorium. The latest one was narrower than the one that had been defended. And here's the important point. Nothing that the Supreme Court did in that unsigned order that Alan spoke about had any impact on the merits of this. All the court did was allow the moratorium to continue. They declined to lift the stay that the district court had issued. And yes, there were tea leaves suggesting that if the court reached the merits, it would it would strike down the moratorium. Kavanaugh said that explicitly. The four justices who would have voted to lift the stay implied that perhaps, but technically the court did not do anything that would have ruled out the arguments that the government had always been making, two administrations had been making in support of this moratorium, and therefore it was perfectly open as a legal matter. Now, there may have been prudential reasons not to do it, but as a legal matter, it was perfectly open to the administration to issue a new moratorium, and they issued a narrower one. So you are here stating a, uh, you know, emphasizing the sort of modest nature of your argument, but even that formulation of it goes against, uh, I mean, the Washington Post had an editorial saying this was completely lawless. There have been a, a lot of people in the commentariat have made varying degrees of sort of hyperbolic suggestions that this was very inappropriate. And your argument is that, no, you know, they may lose on the merits, but uh, the law of the case is with them. And if they want to buy time by doing that, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Right. Yes. But let me just clarify or expand on that in two ways. That's exactly right. But one, the reason I believe that the commentariat thought the administration was acting lawlessly here is that the administration, as Alan said, before they issued this renewed moratorium, had proclaimed that the Supreme Court had ruled against them. This is what the press secretary said. This is what the uh, Gene Sperling, the person in charge of doling out the COVID money, said. And frankly, it's what President Biden said and, and implied when he gave a press conference just before the issuance of the new moratorium. Not only did they say they couldn't do it when they changed it because the Supreme Court tied their hands, a statement that I don't think is legally accurate and I don't believe reflected advice from the Justice Department. Not only did they say that before flip-flopping and issuing the order, they, uh, when they changed their minds, they didn't say that the Justice Department gave us this guidance. They said, we went to these outside scholars at Harvard and Duke and they said it was okay. And then the president, in, in some incoherent remarks at a press conference, you know, basically made it seem like what everyone interpreted it to be, which is, I don't think I can do this. I think the court ruled it out, but we're doing it anyway because some outside scholars told me it was worth a try. So I think that the reaction to this is almost completely a result of an overstatement about the meaning of the Supreme Court order and about the way that the administration spoke about the meaning of the order. In part, it was speaking that way early on. Saki and, and Sperling were speaking that way because they were trying to pressure Congress into doing something about it. So they were saying, we can't do anything. You have to do something. Congress bought, put enormous pressure on them, and then they flipped. And when they flipped, and especially the way they flipped, it made it seem like they were acting lawlessly. Yeah. So, Alan, I want to talk to you about that because I, I think 
there is something, though I don't contest Jack's point that there's nothing untoward about what they did. I think there is always something untoward about the president saying basically what amounts to, I think what I'm about to do is is probably unconstitutional, but it'll buy me some time uh, to distribute some money so that, you know, some people won't get evicted. And so I'm going to act unconstitutionally until the Supreme Court makes me stop. And in the meantime, you know, we'll get some good done, which is basically what he falsely said. And Jen Psaki and Gene Sperling, you know, said basically the same thing. And so I guess my question is, how big a problem is it that the administration sort of talked like it was acting unlawfully, even if what they were actually doing was pretty defensible. Yeah, I, I think this is where the procedural complexity of this situation really confuses issues, because there are actually a lot of different elements here that are hard to tease, tease out. So let me try to unpack it a little bit. So on the one hand, there's the problem of the president potentially misrepresenting his and his administration's legal view on the issue to the public. Um, you know, when the president says, we think that such and such is legal, or we think that such and such is not legal, the public needs to be able to trust that. And based on how abruptly they switch their position, and based also on the fact that it's likely that, um, though we don't know, uh, that DOJ supported the authority of the CDC to issue these eviction moratoriums throughout this whole process, um, there's an argument that as you pointed out, um, when Biden said, we can't do this, he was actually falsely stating that. And so whatever he really thought and whatever he changed his mind on, if the administration is not being candid with the public on what they think their legal position is, that's a real problem, especially if they're changing their public position based on the kind of political wins. Now, again, I understand why they were doing it, and maybe that was politically advantageous for them, but that's not great from the you know sense of norms of transparency and, and rule of law and that sort of thing. So that, that that's the first issue. The second issue is just as a matter of public messaging, it is, I think, not a good thing for the president to ever say the phrase, I don't think what I'm doing is legal, but that's okay because by the time the courts enjoin me, I will have accomplished my objective, right? If the president thinks that what he is doing is not legal, he should not do it. If the president thinks that what he is doing is legal, he should say that what he thinks he is doing is legal, but he should not say, I think what I'm doing is illegal and I'm going to wait for the courts to enjoin me because, of course, the president is not just a regular litigant in civil litigation. The president is the head of the executive branch. He has an independent obligation to take care that the laws be executed. And so he presumably has an obligation to act in a sincere belief that he is executing the laws as he understands them. The third issue, and I think this is where I guess actually really complicated and where I might take a little bit of exception um, from Jack's position, is this question of if the president believes that you know, if the president is getting tea leaves, as it were, that the Supreme Court is going to strike down what he's going to do, but the Supreme Court has not said so, and there is not controlling evidence or controlling precedent on point, what should the president do, right? Is the president's job to predict what the Supreme Court will do um, and say, you know, if there's a 50% plus probability that the Supreme Court will say that what I'm doing is illegal, I cannot do that. Or is the role of the president to say, look, as long as there is a legally available option here that is not foreclosed by existing precedent and existing controlling law, even if I think I'm probably going to lose, look, it's still worth it for me to try this out because I, in my Article 2 
responsibilities, think that what I'm doing is actually okay. And look, if the Supreme Court wants to officially tell me it's not, we'll deal with that then. I think this is actually a really tricky question. It's not obvious that there's a, a, a kind of blanket right or wrong answer. I think there's probably a point at which, you know, even a president that thinks the Supreme Court is wrong has to accept that he's probably going to lose and therefore he probably shouldn't do it. But, but this is a matter of degree. I think that what's, what's frustrating in particular about this case is because the administration has been talking out of so many sides of its mouth about what it actually thinks the law is, we can't even get to this issue. So I just want to take issue with two things that y'all said. The first is both of you said some version of the president said that he didn't think he, what he was doing was lawful. And that was a natural interpretation of the president's words, especially in light of what the press secretary and Gene Sperling had said before. It's technically not what he said. The president, I don't believe Biden's a lawyer. Maybe he is, but he is. Okay, he is. So he gave a whole bunch of rambling remarks, and, but he never said those words. He said he did say that the court has already ruled on the present eviction moratorium, but they were, of course, issuing a new and narrower one that they thought, and that was wrong, by the way. That's an inaccurate statement of what the court said. In any event, I'm not going to parse his really, truly incoherent words, but he didn't actually say what I'm doing is illegal, but I'm going to do it anyway. That was the natural interpretation of it. That's the way people did interpret it. It's not what he said. As for the question about the standard for the Justice Department defending executive action via executive order in court, the Justice Department, as a legal matter, has never said that we're going to base our litigation position on a prediction of whether we'll win or lose. And they often defend things that they think there's a good chance to believe uh, that they will lose. And they think that they should make the best arguments and let the court decide. The SG and the litigation branches are in a much different posture from when the Office of Legal Counsel is giving advice for, as a basis for presidential action that's not going to be reviewed in court. That's the first point. The second point is, so I think it was easily available for them, consistent with Justice Department traditions, to defend the new narrower moratorium. There was simply no ruling to the contrary. Moreover, I think it's a mistake to allow the Supreme Court, without a reasoned decision, on the shadow docket where there was very little, where there was diminished briefing, there was no oral argument, very little amicus participation, no vote on the merits, and no reasoned decision making by the court, it, it, it's really a bad precedent or a bad idea for the court to be able to, in effect, force the president to stop defending a position through that mechanism. So I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think that anything the Biden administration did when it ultimately issued the new narrower moratorium and defended it in court, I don't think it came close to passing the line of where of the types of orders in the types of legal context that the Justice Department always defends. All right, let's talk about the role of the Justice Department here. Alan, the body of your piece raises questions about where the Justice Department actually was on these questions and whether the president was or was not getting advice from the Justice Department. Walk us through your concerns here. Sure. So the, the main concern here is that when the administration went from the position that it did not have the legal authority for the CDC to implement a new moratorium. And it flipped that to the position that the CDC did have that authority. DOJ does not appear to have been consulted, or at least based on the reporting and the public statements of the administration, there are good reasons to think that DOJ was not consulted. So the, the first is that 
in the, the you know several articles now that have been reported on this, there's no indication that DOJ was part of that process. Um, in addition, uh, there's a reporter that asked Attorney General Garland directly whether DOJ signed off on the on the second CDC eviction moratorium, and Garland kind of declined to answer that that question. And then uh, the administration has said that it has actually gone into some detail about uh, where it got its legal advice, and that did not include DOJ. In particular, this, the, as Jack pointed out, the administration consulted a variety of constitutional law scholars. It consulted the White House Counsel's Office, um, which of course is sort of within the White House itself. And then it consulted the lawyers at the CDC. And we can talk about the pros and cons of all of those sources of information. But again, there is a really, to my mind, striking absence of consultation with DOJ, who one would think, whether it's the Office of Legal Counsel, Civil Appellate, the SG's office, you know, would be the ones providing uh, this sort of advice. Now, it's it's quite possible that DOJ didn't provide this advice because their position had never changed. They thought the original CDC moratorium was fine. They thought that this new moratorium was fine. And so they had nothing to add to this conversation. But then the problem is, well, then then it sounds like there's a big disconnect between what DOJ thinks the law says and what the White House thinks the law says. And while it is fully within the president's constitutional authority to decide to disagree with DOJ, to go with some other advisor's view of the law, that is not the usual course of business. And we expect there to be some reason for that. And so the idea that DOJ wasn't even consulted to me is very concerning. And I think, you know, one anecdote really brought this out into, into sharp relief you know, at some point, Biden spoke with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi about the eviction moratorium, and, and you know, he told her that according to you know his lawyers and the administration's lawyers, the CDC did not have the authority to uh, impose a new moratorium. And according to reporting, uh, Pelosi responded with, quote unquote, get better lawyers. And after that, Biden went and talked to a bunch of constitutional law scholars and changed his legal position. So if Biden thinks that his lawyers, the lawyers in DOJ, aren't good enough, and he has to go outside the government itself to get good legal advice. That raises huge concerns about the standing of DOJ within the White House legal process, and a, a real concern that Biden is, in fact, going to fulfill his campaign promise of, of returning the executive branch norms around legal decision making. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jack, is it fair to say that you're less concerned on this score than Alan is, or do you share Alan's concerns here? I share Alan's concerns to the extent that I think the administration hugely bungled their public position on the meaning of the Supreme Court decision and on whether they had the legal authority to 
issue the new moratorium. I mean, they just blew it terribly. And everybody interpreted it to mean that they thought their hands were legally tied, but they were going to do it anyway. So I just think from a PR perspective, I think it was just a bit of a disaster. And it's, I agree with Alan, it's, it's hard to understand why the administration would have felt the need to go to outside scholars if it had the legal authority from DOJ. Uh, but that said, I would be shocked if the Justice Department views were not made known to the White House. I would be shocked if the Justice Department's views on the, on the ultimate legal question had changed at all because nothing had happened to affect their views. It's quite possible that uh, the Justice Department or the Solicitor General or someone said, look, we don't think you should do this new moratorium because we can defend it. It's, it's within our traditions and it's lawful to defend it, but we're likely to lose. They may have, there was a suggestion in the New York Times story that the lawyers worried that they were going to get a bad precedent on the merits that would hurt the CDC in the future. The Solicitor General might have been worried about uh, its credibility before the court. The Solicitor General had also, in a representation to the court before the, the June 29th order, had stated that the CDC does not plan to renew this moratorium. So I can imagine the DOJ position being, we can do this lawfully, but we, don't, we think it's a very bad idea for a whole bunch of reasons, because we're going to lose anyway, and it's going to have all these other bad consequences. If I had to guess, I would say that's what their position was. And then the question was, you know, but what was the role of the outside scholars? Why did the White House go to the outside scholars? What kind of leverage or cover were they looking for? It's, I have to say it's very, very mysterious. But I don't think, so I think this is an example of the appearance of very bad behavior and DOJ either getting cut out or ignored. But I very, very seriously doubt that's what happened here. All right. Let me pose an alternative hypothesis of what happened, which is that DOJ gave some careful guidance of the sort that you just described, which basically is, hey, there are a lot of prudential reasons not to proceed. If you do it, we're very likely to lose and you could set a bad precedent. And besides, we did inform the court that we weren't going to, that CDC wasn't going to renew it. And then this got translated in White House talk among non-lawyers to DOJ thinks we don't have the authority to do it. And then the president did what the president sometimes does, which is talk in a very windbaggy way and in a sort of stream of consciousness fashion that kind of put a a harder legal edge on those views than their merely prudential quality of the actual advice. And so you had almost, a, you basically had the Justice Department doing what you would want the Justice Department doing and the White House in public statements mischaracterizing it. Does that sound plausible to either of you? It sounds completely plausible to me if I had to bet, I would say that's very close to what happened. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, no, I agree. It, it reminds me of this, of the, you know, the great phrase, never attribute to malice that which is, you know, equally explained by by incompetence, right? It's almost certain, I think, that that is what happened. And and I think that actually probably also explains um, at least some of this whole thing with the outside scholars, right? And, you know, Biden was talking to Pelosi. Pelosi wasn't happy. Pelosi told 
Biden to get in touch with, you know, one of these scholars, with Larry Tribe at HLS. And that's what the administration did, because, you know, when the Speaker of the House tells you to do something and it's costless, you just do it. The problem is, once you've spoken to these outside scholars, now it makes it seem, whether it's true or not, that that's the reason you changed your legal position, even if you didn't change your legal position, even if you were confused of what your own legal position was. So I, I think, you know, as I dig more and more into the story, I'm I will admit I'm, I'm less concerned that the White House was kind of trying intentionally to cut DOJ out of the process. And I'm more concerned that there is not enough coordination um, and not, frankly, enough sensitivity on the part of the White House to message properly its legal position. You know, I, I've heard in the last week or so, a lot of people have been trying to defend or maybe explain away the, this misstep by saying, well, look, it's policy people and policy people, you know, didn't necessarily get the, the law right and it's not their job. And Sure, that's true. They're policy people. So then get some law people out there in front of the press, right? Have people who can actually explain accurately what the position is, because the whole point of bringing back these norms of professionalism and competence and following the rule of law is that you can't just say, oh, well, that's just some legal stuff. Um, what's really important is the policy. I mean, the policy is obviously super important, but getting the law right is equally important. And I don't think that we should let the Biden administration off the hook for that because it's caused such a big mess. All right. There is one person who's supposed to have uh, his eye on the law and also be part of the president's policy team, at least on legal policy issues. And he's also somebody who should know something about the law of a case that has gone up through the D.C. Circuit. His name, of course, is Merrick Garland, who used to sit on that court and is no slouch in an administrative law context. Where is he in all of this, Alan? Totally unclear. Um, I, I think this is, to me, the most interesting as yet underreported question of what was the attorney general's role in this. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, he Garland may be the most, just from a pure kind of legal galaxy brain perspective, most qualified attorney general in a century, right? But I don't think that this was primarily an issue of really complicated, difficult legal issues per se. I think to me, this is an issue of bureaucratic representation, representing the Department of Justice's interests in the White House process, making sure that things go through the Department of Justice, making that clear to the to the White House, to the, the chief of staff. You know, I would not be surprised if a week or two from now, we're going to get another process story out of the Times or the Post saying something that, you know, and then Garland called Chief of Staff Ron Klain really, really angry because uh, it this whole thing makes it look like the Department of Justice is out of the loop and that, you know, just as importantly, A.G. Garland is out of the loop when you're precisely right. His job is to be the you know, key legal advisor to the president um, on issues of, you know, overall executive branch you know, power and, and activity. So that to me is the big unanswered question. To me, there's another big unanswered question, though, which is the role of Jen Psaki in all of this. Because as best as I can understand the timeline, the first person in the White House to characterize the administration's posture vis-a-vis -vis this Supreme Court order was the spokeswoman for the department who gives a completely erroneous statement about the legal posture of the CDC. And it seems to me the question of, presumably she didn't write those talking points herself, 
who's giving her legal nonsense to say to the press? And more than just that, why isn't the Department of Justice, why isn't there someone in the AG's office whose job it is to you know, watch all of her press conferences, read all those transcripts, and make sure that if she's saying things that are legally incorrect or that could cause problems for the administration or the department, that the department then can go to the White House and have them correct the record. You know, the, the issue here is that it's it's not as if the possibility that the CDC would issue another moratorium and that it would go up through the courts and they, the Justice Department would have to explain the flip-flopping. It's not as if this was unanticipated. Um, the Department of Justice should have understood that this was a possibility. And so when they saw that Jen Psaki or anyone else, any of the, you know, quote unquote, policy people from the administration were getting the law wrong, that should have been a huge red flag. And so again, there's a real question of the the communication between DOJ and and the White House. You know, it's interesting, you know, in the last couple of months, we've been seeing A.G. Garland, for a lot of obviously correct reasons, trying to put more distance between the Department of Justice and the White House, which makes sense given the many abuses and norm violations of the Trump administration. But at, at the same time, it's actually very important for at least at some level there to be a very close relationship with the White House and DOJ so that the White House can get the best legal advice. So the answer cannot be to kind of totally wall those two institutions off. Otherwise, you get stuff like this where the you know White House doesn't know what DOJ is doing and DOJ doesn't know what the White House is doing and you get a big mess. Yeah, so I actually want to talk about that specifically, Jack. Merrick Garland the other day issued a new contacts policy memo with the White House, and I'm sure that somewhere, and we talked about it on the Lawfare podcast, and I'm sure somewhere out there, there is a super confused Lawfare podcast listener who's saying, wait a minute, last week, Ben is interviewing Chuck Rosenberg and Carrie Cordero about the new contacts policy memo that says, you know, White House officials really shouldn't be in touch with DOJ officials uh, on investigative matters, except under extremely limited circumstances. And they're praising this memo a fair, a, a good deal. And this week, you're talking to Alan and Jack, who are complaining that there isn't better coordination between the White House and DOJ on statements about the law. And I will protest that there's actually no conflict between those two statements at all, but I want you to walk us through why, in fact, they are not in conflict, if you agree with me. And secondly, to what extent might we say that, hey, the new reticence about talking to the White House at justice may be playing a role in having the left hand having no idea what the right hand is doing in this situation. Let me start with the last point. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why people inferred, I think incorrectly, that the Justice Department was either cut out or not listened to was that President Biden, just before he said uh, at his press conference about what the scholars thought about this new moratorium, he said something like, of course, I don't want to tell my Justice Department what to do, or I don't want to get involved in what they're thinking. He said something like that, which suggested that he had that on his mind. So that, that's just the back background point. I don't think there's any contradiction between issuing a policy about separation between the White House and DOJ and investigations. That basic policy goes back to Watergate. That basic policy was actually in place uh, during the Trump administration even. 
the journalist policy is an expansion of a policy that's been expanding through administrations for decades now. So that's that's one issue. The question about what the administration's views on the law are, uh, both in litigating before the Supreme Court, the question of a legality of a presidential order is not something on which there needs to be or should be separation between the Justice Department and the White House. There should be close cooperation. But let me back up and say, I'm not sure that I agree with Alan that it was Merrick Garland's job to be, or his office's job to be watching the press secretary and scrutinizing her for correct legal statements. I think in the first instance, that's the White House counsel's job. And it seems to me we haven't talked enough about the White House counsel. That Jen Psaki statement was clearly vetted. It was part of their decision. That's when they announced that they were going to seek Congress's help. And clearly part of that coordinated decision in seeking Congress's help was that the administration, somebody, and I think it was in the White House, decided to represent the Supreme Court decision in a certain way. And moreover, Psaki said that on a Thursday, and three or four days later, uh, Gene Sperling repeats the same talking point. So there was no pushback from anyone, not just the Justice Department or the White House counsel. And I have to think that's because it was agreed to in advance. Now, someone in the Justice Department should have noticed and their heads might have exploded, and I wouldn't have been surprised if they sent a message saying this isn't an accurate reading of the case. But I think ultimately the responsibility for the White House press secretary getting talking points legally correct lies with the White House counsel's office. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Jack said. And, and by you know putting some blame on DOJ, I don't mean to in any way absolve the White House counsel uh, of anything. And we should absolutely talk about their role. It, it's just that you know, if you're the attorney general, you have to understand no matter what the official job description is, at the end of the day, you need to protect, you know, most narrowly your department's equities. And you also just have a general obligation to make sure the administration does as much as it can do to get the law right. So, you know, whether or not it's your job or not, I, I do think it's still prudent to make sure that someone is double checking the White House counsel's work. And at the very least, from here on in, Given the poor performance of whoever was vetting those statements, I think the DOJ will have to understand that um, you know the White House counsel can't necessarily be 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 trusted to get the the law right. The other thing I wanted to say is kind of to zoom, zoom out uh, on this question of you know what is the right level of independence versus coordination. I think this this example really shows why this is such a difficult problem because you know we all understand I think intuitively maybe especially after the Trump years the dangers of too much coordination, too much interference from the White House to the Department of Justice. And so therefore, there's this temptation to say, well, then let's just separate them as much as possible, and that will preserve DOJ's independence. And on the one hand, that is true. That will preserve DOJ's independence. But if the president, through either you know procedural reasons or any other reasons, believes that he cannot go to DOJ whenever he needs to for advice, that doesn't mean he's going to just listen to what DOJ says, he's going to find different advice. He's going to find advice from people that he's not so independent from. In this case, it appears to be the White House counsel or outside constitutional law scholars or whoever it is. So there's just always this trade-off between, on the one hand, you want DOJ to have independence, but you don't want it to be so independent that the White House just goes somewhere else for advice because it's such a pain in the butt to get advice from DOJ. Yeah, but I, I want to foot stomp the idea that the independence is on investigative and prosecutorial matters. And the idea that there should be independence on review of and litigation of 
a policy decision by an expert agency within the scope of its jurisdiction, nobody actually argues that, at least nobody who understands what the Justice Department does. And I think if the lesson that the Biden White House is taking from the Trump years is that they need to keep their distance from the Justice Department, even on such administrative matters, they've drawn altogether the wrong lesson. But Ben, I think I agree with you 100%. I don't think that's what happened here. I agree they made it seem like what ha- that's what happened here, but I would be shocked if they thought that they couldn't seek the Justice Department's advice on these questions. And I would be frankly shocked, as I said earlier, if the Justice Department didn't make both their legal and their pragmatic judgments known to the White House. You know, we'll see. I guess this will come out more, but I, I that that distinction is obvious, and I would be very surprised if this administration thought otherwise. But that said, the president did have this remark at his press conference about not wanting to, you know, step on DOJ's toes. So it's clearly on his mind. Yeah, it's on his mind. It's and true. it's good that it's on his mind. It means that he shouldn't have any contact with Merrick Garland about whether and when he's going to indict Rudy, Rudy Giuliani or Matt Gates, But it doesn't mean he shouldn't be in touch with Merrick Garland, you know, or that his counsel's office shouldn't be in touch with the department over what they should and shouldn't say about their legal authority to have, a, have an eviction moratorium. The White House counsel's office calls the Justice Department a dozen times a day on questions like that, and they always have, and it's never been part of in my experience and knowledge, it's never been part of what we mean by DOJ independence. The distinction you're drawing is very important. All right. So let's close with a sense of what this episode means. You're both in broad agreement that uh, notwithstanding the optics, the Biden administration didn't do anything lawless here. So Why does this episode matter from Alan first, then Jack? Why shouldn't we just chalk it up to, uh, you know, the president is a little bit logoreal. Sometimes he did one of his Uncle Joe things, but no harm, no foul, because there's really nothing improper happened. Why is it more than that? So I think there are two issues here. But before I I go into them, I I do want to emphasize, right? I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that there's some equivalency between the stuff that happened in this case and like the worst of the abuses of the Trump administration. Um, I think that's how, I mean, I've been seeing that's how some conservative media outlets are trying to spin this. I mean, I I don't think that's the case, right? You know, I, I think here you have, you have your own problems, but this is nothing like the kind of almost sort of intentional destruction of norms that we saw in the Trump administration. But at the same time, I think we also need to be willing to hold Biden to account, not just to be better than Trump, which is an extraordinarily low bar, but to be you know, particularly good at um, rebuilding those norms. And so you know, if I am perhaps hyperventilating a little bit in this case, um, it's because you know, Biden has very much promised to bring back those norms. And so I think it's important to to hold him kind of to that and to to put his actions under a microscope. But again, at the same time, I don't want anyone to think that, you know, this is just as bad as what Trump did, because it is not. Now, to get into what I think that the two main problems are beyond just kind of Uncle Joe's occasional logoria, I think there are two. So first, there's just the process question, right, of, you know, what is the 
the level of communication between the White House and the Department of Justice. You know, is stuff going to DOJ? Are the right people talking to each other? Um, you know, these aren't the sexiest questions, but in the day-to-day operations of a White House, they're really and an administration generally, they're really, really important. So someone's got to tighten up. I don't know if it's, you know, an issue with DOJ or with the chief of staff or White House counsel, um, but there's some real process fails. Those have to be fixed. The second thing is this idea of going outside the government in particular to get, you know, expert counsel when you really don't need it, that that quite bothers me. And to be clear, none of the people that Biden, the Biden administration consulted, you know, Larry Tribe, Martha Minow, Walter Dellinger, these are eminent law professors, right? I'd be very interested in their opinions. There's nothing wrong with necessarily talking to them or hearing what they have to say. And um, you know, I'm I'm a law professor. I teach con law. It'd be, it'd be great if if people took you know what I said what I said seriously one day. But the idea that the Biden administration would do that because it thought it wasn't getting politically palatable enough legal answers from its own administration, right? Because Nancy Pelosi told them to quote unquote get better lawyers. That to me strikes me as really really disturbing. Because again, it's not as if the Biden administration doesn't have an insane amount of legal talent within it, right? You know, the White House Counsel Dana Remus is a law professor. The two head, you know, the, the top two people at OLC, Don Johnson and Marty Lederman, are law professors. Merrick Garland knows everything there is to know about the Constitution. They don't need to go outside the government to get expert legal advice. And given the dangers of cherry picking, you know, there are a lot of people in legal academy. There are a lot of very sincerely widely, you know, there are a lot of sincerely held views. You can find an eminent person to support almost any legal position that you want. So that to me is the big concern. And, you know, even if they didn't act the way they did because Larry Tribe told them, just the fact that they would would be willing to do that and be kind of so cavalier about talking about that, that raises a real question to me about their priorities. And that, to me, is really concerning. Jack, what do you think the ultimate importance of this episode is? There's, first of all, I think, despite the fact that I defended what the Biden administration did in substance, I think they've taken a a political hit. And this will stick with them for a while because they have made a big deal out of rule of law values. And Biden's made a big deal about taking constitutional structure seriously and, and the like. And it really did appear, even though I don't think it happened, that they were acting lawlessly and basically caving in the face of a Supreme Court decision to satisfy the the left wing of the Democrat Party. And I think that that and it wasn't just the right who was saying this. It was the New York Times, excuse me, the Washington Post editorial page and uh, lots of people in the center and center left who were saying this. So it's hard to measure, of course, the extent to which that matters, but they've lost some They've lost some ground in their efforts to appear principled on these issues. Second, I agree with Alan that there's, there was clearly some problem of coordinating the legal position of the administration. And there was confusion, it seems, either between the White House and the Justice Department or within the White House about what the right interpretation of the opinion was of the Supreme Court's order, what the right stance to take on the law was in seeking to get congressional uh, renewal of the moratorium, somebody screwed up badly. The messaging ended up collapsing on them and hurting them very much. And so, you know, the real, I don't know if it's cause for concern, but the real point to focus on is what's going on, who's coordinating legal policy, what is the relationship between the White House counsel and the Justice Department. And interestingly, none of these stories that I've read yet has actually, Alan is inferring from silence, as he suggested, that DOJ wasn't involved or might not have been involved. It's really interesting that even in the kind of New York Times cleanup story where the administration tried to present a 
put a good face on what happened here. DOJ was never mentioned. So there's something more to learn about what the Justice Department did, what its stance was towards what the White House was saying about the law. Those are the, those are the important issues to focus on. The last thing I'll say is it's a puzzle to me why, I mean, I, I know and admire the three scholars that the White House sought guidance from. It's a puzzle to me how they could have possibly thought that that was going to help them. And I, I just don't, I can't, it, it, maybe getting outside advice is fine, but publicizing that these scholars thought what they were doing was okay and not telling us what the DOJ position was. It's very hard for me to understand what they thought, what positive outcome that would have accomplished. Is it fair in closing to call this not lawless, but really dumb? That's the short version of, of my law, my 4,000 word lawfare piece. Alan, what do you think? On the merits, I think that's right. But I think in the, the doubt that it casts on the Biden commitment to certain rule of law norms, I think it goes beyond just really dumb, right? When it comes to the executive branch, a lot of this stuff isn't a question of technical law, lawfulness or lawlessness. It's about the expression and performance and supporting of, of norms. And I think in this case, whether they wanted to or not, they, they harm those norms. Um, so I think it, it was definitely dumb, but I think it was, it was also more damaging than just that. We're going to leave it there. Alan Rosenstein, Jack Goldsmith, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, which has not yet evicted the Lawfare Institute and now can't, at least until October 3rd. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on all the socials, leave us a rating and review wherever you found us, buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. This episode was Recorded by Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo, the Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.